Welcome to The Sway Effect, a podcast series featuring the innovators, disruptors, movers, and shakers that are shaping the marketing communications industry today. I'm Jennifer Risi, the founder and president of The Sway Effect. Together, we will explore what's now and what's next and the trends that are shaping our industry. This month is ADHD Awareness Month, and we are discussing the challenges associated with what we think we know and how we can help neurodivergence to succeed. ADHD is real. It's actually one of the most studied neurological conditions, but many still do not understand its impact and we need to dispel the myths. Many with ADHD are told to try harder or everyone does that. ADHD is not just something everyone has. The only way for neurodivergence to succeed in the world that isn't designed for them is by adapting and creating an environment where they can thrive. We need to focus on awareness and education in order to create acceptance. In this next episode of the podcast, we will address all of these issues, and I'm joined today by Dr. Rod Berger. Welcome, Rod. Jen, how are you today? I am so excited that you're here, and this is the first time I think I'm turning the tables on you and interviewing you. I know. Now I get to sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Rod, you are a true media influencer, and I'm so thrilled that you're here. Um, For my listeners, Rod has conducted over 2,000 interviews from innovators and entertainers and leaders from all around the world. Um, Rod writes for major media such as Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, and Parents Magazine, and I couldn't be more happy for you to be here. Thank you again. Of course, Jen. I'm happy to be here, and it's nice to spend some time and have a conversation with you and planet Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I wanted to talk about, you know, it's, it's ADHD Awareness Month, Um, And I wanted to get your perspective. So let's just jump right in. You know, we still need a month to shine a spotlight on ADHD awareness. What can we all do to help our colleagues and friends with ADHD to succeed? Uh, It's a great point that you know, sadly, we need a month. Uh, I think that we we could go down the list of months that we have to celebrate just to sort of bring awareness. You know, I I think it's what's fascinating is that through the pandemic and this was said to me in an interview recently, is that in essence, we were all in the same storm. We may have been in different boats, but we were all experiencing the same storm. And if anything, that can give us a platform from which to think about how we are experiencing life through, you know, pixelated environments, whether that's Zoom, uh, remote workplaces or schools. And so I think that that hopefully provides an opportunity to have a conversation about how people live and learn differently. uh, And just being aware that, you know, we, we all have our sort of our, our own approaches to life and things that we like or things that we feel like put us in a position to succeed. And I think the openness and the transparent nature of it is, is what we need to have. I mean, look, we've got, I just had an interview before we got on today around DE&I, right, both at the school and the corporate level. And so just conversations that are much more acceptable to have that really lean into sort of who we are as people. And I think that can be very helpful with our colleagues and people that we're working with is just to understand we're all different. And we all have different ways in which we want to learn. So the conversation is the start. You know, I don't want to date myself, but I couldn't agree with you more. You know, when I was growing up, you know, you never talked about these topics. You know, you just thought, you know, this person should try harder or, you know, they, this is how it's always been done. You should be able to fit in with everybody else. And, you know, I'm so glad with how far we've come, but, you know, it's, we still have so much farther to go because these topics are still, there's almost like a stigma associated with having these topics that you might be someone that has ADHD. 
You're exactly right. I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had at the soccer field, right, with parents and talking about their kids, whether they're in public or private schools um, and or professional colleagues that, you know, have been open and shared their that they have ADHD um, and that they have, you know, they there are certain environments um, that they just feel like they succeed in more than others. But it kind of goes back to what you were saying, this whole, we need a month to celebrate, especially in the educational side, right? I hear all this around these students. It's like, well, they're meeting this threshold. So maybe we're going to pull their services. No, no, no. This is, this is not like a choice. This is their life. And this is not about, well, we can give services maybe on Mondays and Wednesdays. Okay. So what about Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday? So we do have a long way to go where we start to, you know, understand that we do all think different differently. We learn differently. And that may be the benefit of all the technology that we have at our fingertips is that whether we're listening to a podcast, you know, like a, a you know, a, a plug here for Jen and the, the Sway Effect podcast, but, you know, is it, is it from an audio perspective? Is it from a video perspective? Is it the written word? Is it something that we can read on a tablet or not? Is it an ex, you know, something that's experiential? Is it the metaverse? Right. So there are so many different ways where we're starting to just now understand how we engage with different environments and where we may like, you know, someone may not have been diagnosed with ADHD, but all these different environments are raising different questions for them and way in which they're digesting information and then processing that information. That's what we're really talking about, processing the sort of the flood of info that's coming our way and then wondering, well, why are young people struggling? <laughs> well, maybe it's because we're nonstop. Everything is nonstop, especially in the West. Right. How prevalent do you think ADHD is in, in today's society? You know, you talk to a lot of different people. You and I first got to meet each other through work that I'm doing with one of my clients in the education space around issues like learning and thinking differences. Even before I started working with the organization, which is understood.org, um, you know, I really wasn't very familiar with how prevalent ADHD is in our society. What's your perspective on that? I think it's, this is purely subjective, but I think it's- yeah. More often than not. I mean, we're really talking sort of a, a, a spectrum of experience and it, talking about processing. So I may be struggling just that much more than you are to process within a traditional environment. Maybe you're doing better in, with different sort of stimuli. So I, I think it's that we're learning much more about the diagnosis than it is that we're having maybe more people with it. It's just that we have much more awareness around the way in which we're thinking about information coming in and whether or not we can sort of spit it back out sort of in this quick like fashion. And some of it is development, right? There's a, there's a family that I'm very close to and their child um, has been diagnosed with ADHD. And, but yet what's interesting is as he gets older, you can see where he's growing and developing and gaining new skills. And so it's this, iterative process to sort of grow and develop. And I think as adults, we're in the same spot, you know, I mean, we're now multitasking like we've never done before, right? I mean, you could be interviewing me right now with seven different screens at your fingertips that I can't even see. <laughs> You're probably texting. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I aming, right? And so I think the requirements of what we need to do to be successful have changed. And so we still don't know. So I think it's highly prevalent and it's really about understanding this sort of three-dimensionality of it that it's a spectrum of experience in the way in which we pull in information. You know, I think I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, you know, a lot of the time from a social media perspective, you know, sometimes there could be negativity associated with no social media, with bullying or other things that have happened to kids. But I think that social media in a lot of ways has destigmatized 
the fact that there are challenges um, and differences like ADHD that that the kids and, and adults have that I think maybe we wouldn't have had the openness to talk about if we didn't have the likes of TikTok and, and other types of social media. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that the technology has kind of normalized it to some degree, right? I mean, you keep seeing all these data points around, you know, our attention, attention spans just keep dwindling. And so does that mean that we're not interested or that it's such an influx of information and stimuli that we're struggling to process it and then figure out what to do with it cognitively. So I think it does normalize it because we can all, I mean, I don't know, you name a human that can't sort of, <laughs> that they can't sort of connect with you or me or anybody else on, there's just so much going on. I just feel like I, I'm overwhelmed with the information and sort of the things that we have to do and what's at our fingertips. And so, I mean, just think about for even for parents of school age children, how many activities, I mean, everything we have feels like it's more, 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 and we have less time, which is going to impact our ability to pay attention to sort of feel like we have command of whatever information is sort of coming our way. And I think that that alone helps to normalize it to some degree because parents feel it, kids feel it, colleagues feel it, you know, superiors, depending upon sort of the structure, feel it. Um, the communication industry feels it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Nothing is ever enough, right? It's more, 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 more. So I think when you have that kind of world um, in which we live, then you're going to, I think, connect with people and say, yeah, you know what, I, I'm overloaded as well. And I'm not sure I'm processing everything in the way I, I used to. I think we're we're all in overload. I mean, all, all all types of everywhere. I mean, like literally every Monday is just so <laughs> overwhelming in so many regards to so many people. Every call I've had today, it's been, I oh my god, it's Monday. There's so much going on. It's 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 crazy. So you know, to add that to add to it, you know, learning and thinking differences, that just takes it to a whole other level. So how how do we help break these stigmas? How do we make there be more of an openness to have these conversations. Um, because, you know, I've noticed through being more aware to your point, I've noticed, you know, challenges on my own team of how I need to support my team in other, other ways to help them to succeed. I think there are sort of two sides to the coin. One, I think it's to sort of have the impact like you've had where you're working with a client that just it's sort of front and center for you to have a an understanding of that so you can do your job well. I think the other is to actually tell the stories of people that are succeeding and doing really well with all kinds of backgrounds, right? And so that to me is important. It's like, I think about people that I've interviewed in the creative space that will have talked about sort of challenges they may have had in traditional academic settings growing up or in work environments. And it wasn't until they found their craft that in essence, the world slowed down. And so I think telling more of those stories can be incredibly impactful. It's like, talk about the world slowing down. We know this with professional athletes, right? I mean, it's such a part of our culture that that, that significant transition from college to professional sports, the one thing, right, that underscores success is that athlete's ability to sort of digest the information that's coming their way in their field of play and for it to slow down because the minute it slows down, they then know what to do. Well, to me, that's a fantastic parallel to our to our lives and that once we feel comfortable and capable, now things can we can we can manipulate the information around us and hopefully find our own unique way to respond to that and do so successfully. So I think more and more stories that sort of paint that nice broad tapestry that we're not all we're not all men for corporate. We're not all you know what I mean? It's like we are all different and there's power in that, especially in the creative arts. 
I, I could not agree with you more. The, the openness to, to change and people just even, you know, what happened with the pandemic, you know, it started people to think differently about their lives, let alone, you know, talking about things like ADHD, but just the fact that I've seen people decide, you know what, I need more work-life balance or I need a break and just looking to do things for themselves and, you know, being able to empower folks that have ADHD. And I've seen, I've seen so much support with the start of this month. But I've also seen, you know, people challenging and the fact like, why do we need this month? It's so sad. We still need a month like this. And that's why I started out by saying that because that struck me, but I would rather turn it on its head and make it positive. And the fact that a month like this is just going to continue to raise awareness because that's how people like you and me can actually help to make things better and drive change by actually, you know, being more aware. So we can now also start to cascade that to people we know and who we work with. Yeah, it, it starts with education. I mean, you know, we could say that we're lost causes at our ages, Jen, but it's really, it's the, it's the young kids that have an understanding that even in elementary school, that maybe their classmates need different levels of attention from their teachers or different programs. It, you know, when you have those conversations and, and it becomes just part of it's commonplace, and I'm noticing that with even my kids, the way in which they talk about their fellow classmates that may or may not have different things that they sort of have to navigate. We never talked about that growing up. I mean, it was like that was in sort of like a black hole and in the ether, you just never talked about it. You either were sort of in the normal track, whatever the heck that meant, or you weren't. <laughs> and so I think younger generations that they're just used to talking about things at a deeper level, much more sophisticated level than than we were growing up. And I think that that can be uh, incredibly impactful for them because if they become aware, that starts to translate over time. That makes them think about the types of work environments that they're going to want to be in or their higher ed if they decide to go to university. Do they need something that's remote? Do they enjoy that? Do they have to right. be you know, on campus? So uh, it does start uh, with the younger generation, I think, and the acceptance and understanding that, that their classmates are different than they are. And that's okay. And that should, should be celebrated. One of the things that talking about kids in school, one of the things I've been reading a bunch about, because now that I'm doing more work in this space, I've been educating myself, you know, is about the fact of how parents feel isolated and parents don't 100% know if, you know, who they should talk to about this and should they talk about their child's challenges. Talk a little bit about how we can help parents today to feel that they're supported and more impo most importantly, they can help their kid. So it's a bit of a slippery slope, but since it's just you, me, and planet Earth on this podcast, yes. I will preface this by saying this is purely my opinion. So, you know, consult uh, accordingly. Uh, what I will say uh, is that I think sometimes parents, they have, the, they have the best of intentions, but they go to potentially the wrong source. So, and this is sort of in my old world um, of mental health, but you know, a lot of times parents, if there's, if they think there's something going on and there, there's, a, I want to get to that as well. They go to their pediatrician. Well, you know, when you actually do some investigation, you talk to pediatricians, there's not a lot that they get sort of taught in their own professional development around the mental develop that sort of the cognitive development of young people, right? Just because they can spot if you have strep throat or not does not mean that they have the background to be able to assess and say, you know, this child has sort of X challenge and these are the, sort of the next steps that we should be taking. And so that's, I think, to me, a big challenge. And that's where I do think psychologists 
educational psychologists can be very, very key because they're trained in different areas to be able to assess and help understand from a parent perspective what is going on. So it is hard when uh, when we've got friends or family where there are some challenges there and you know, they tell me that's their first approach and you know, it, it doesn't really go where it needs to go. So I think finding the appropriate and proper resources the is the first step um, to that. And what was I, we said there were two sides to that. See, Jen, you got me going. It is a slip because I have a strong opinion on that. I just, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the worst for my own kids pediatrician. Cause I, I just wonder sort of, okay, well, I, I respect the expertise you have, but I also know that this is not your area of expertise. And so that can be a big, big challenge. And I think it can send parents down the wrong path. Oh, I know what I was going to say, you know, there is the stigma. You mentioned this earlier. And I think that that is really tough. We're in a, I mean, look, I have an eight and 10 year old and they play competitive sports. And I can't believe Jen, the conversations that go on amongst parents that you'd think that we're sort of in Olympic trials or something. <laughs> okay. And you just think to yourself, if you don't put an image out that your kid is sort of perfect or the next, right. In air quotes, then, then what are you saying? Right. And you can sense the pressure that these, I don't know, I don't know why that is that the parents are sort of putting on themselves to paint this picture that everything is perfect. <laughs> right. I was, I was, I was a competitive tennis player growing up. I am fully aware because you know. I think my, my family thought I was going to be the next Jennifer Capriati. People might not know who she is on this podcast, but <laughs> it was literally like, they thought it was going to happen. And I would, they took all the fun out of it takes all the fun out of it. Right. And, and I, so I think that that um, that's a long way of saying that I think that probably the biggest challenge beyond if you're going to the right resource or not yeah. is the parent sort of acknowledging that, you know, there may be some challenges and that's the hardest part when you, when you see it and you don't know what, what do you do? If it, you know, and I'm sure there have been parents out there listening that you you've seen a, fa a friend or family member that's maybe struggling with their child, but they're sort of not seeing what's right in front of them. Do you know what I mean? And they're adding this stigma to it. And then the kid is missing out because mom or dad or grandparent or whoever the caretaker is, is sort of refusing to take in that information and make an overall assessment that, hey, something's going on. I might want to figure out how to support this young person. Right. And they just sort of, you know, ignorance is bliss, kind of put your head in the sand and let's just hope it all goes away. It doesn't go away, <laughs> you know? So strong opinion there. Maybe I, I offended some of your audience, but hopefully not. No, and honestly, I have my own opinions. That's what I said, because I, I, I agree. And I think that everyone, I think we have hopefully more self-awareness where people know what they know, they know what they don't know, because not knowing is the most dangerous is when you act like an expert when you're not informed. So I, I, compl I couldn't agree with you more. Well, and we're such a PC world now too, that it makes it even tougher because are you really going to talk to another mom maybe on the soccer field or at the tennis courts? Yeah. I, Probably not because we're now just in a, a, a society where we're really afraid to offend anybody because we might have an opinion that might be different or we might see something differently. So that would be sort of the downslope of what we're talking about is people's lack of trust to have a conversation that may be deemed as difficult when it may be actually productive and helpful. Right. I'm going to switch gears for one second. So this podcast is very much focused at the marketing, advertising, communi communications industry. What can the media do? to help support, whether it's adults with ADHD or parents supporting a kid with ADHD, how can the media, which has such a more powerful voice than ever, how could they really be helpful in this, in this whole 
um, helping helping people with ADHD? Great question. I don't know if I have a great answer only because it's, it's, I mean, there's an irony, right? There's so much media <laughs> and we're talking about drinking from a fire hydrant kind of a thing that, you know, well, where's that information coming from? It's the media. Like you just can't stop without having some update coming on your phone or your computer about the next. And so I think that that's an inherent challenge to the media, but to your larger point about what can we do? Uh, I, I think it's a little bit, you know, Again, you you can tell that I like sports, but it's like, you know, Derek Jeter, he started years ago, the Players' Tribune. And what I liked about that was this perspective, the first person perspective. So sort of get the reporters out of the way, get the beat writers that are getting paid by the team, like sort of move all that to the side and get these first person accounts of what it's like to be an athlete. And I think for those that enjoy story and they do enjoy sports, that was very compelling as an offering in the market. So I think more first-person accounts, more platforms that allow for an exploration of the why as opposed to the what. And we are, I think, at a crossroads or sort of an inflection point of journalism where at some point, you know, are we, how much reporting do we need to be doing? I mean, the facts are sort of, you can find out the facts. It's like when I interview somebody, Jen, a lot of times I'll say to them, I'm not really interested in what I can find in a press release. Like, that's lazy. That's fine. I'm more interested in sort of the why. Like, why are you doing this? Why does it matter to the people that you're working with or the customers that are sort of buying your product or engaging with you? So I, I think more first-person accounts that share the parent perspective, because what, what does that do? It normalizes the experience. And that's the benefit of the media. And then those that are known sort of, you know, entities or celebrities, athletes, these sorts of things, people that we recognize that you and I may not know, but if we saw their face or heard their name, we would say, yeah, we know who that is. Well, if they're sharing more of their personal experience, which we get now with social media being at such a micro level, then I think it does feel like we have a shared experience and and maybe that's the benefit of, of the media. Um, but I think the, the dangerous on the advertising side is the, this assumption that we have to paint this perfect picture. I mean, you have all these sort of, you know, the Facebook, you know, the families where it just looks idyllic, right? And you're going, okay, I know them. They're very nice people, but they're not as happy as they look on Facebook. <laughs> I'm sure you don't know anybody like that, right, Jen? No, not at all. Not at all. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I don't know if that's true, but Incredible. good for you. Good for you. Um, it's so easy to talk to you. We're already at the final word. Um, last question. Um, what are two or three things that our listeners can do to support their colleagues, friends, family living with ADHD? Well, here's how I'll answer that. So a couple of things that I've been doing, because um, I I feel information overload. Um, I know you and I have chatted about this. One thing, it's not a plug, but I, I got a chance to meet uh, the founder and the team when I was in Stockholm. Um, there's a product, it's called Mendy, M-E-N-D as in David I, Mendy. And it's basically, think of it like neurofeedback. Like if you wanted to go right now, you could go to a clinic, Jen, and spend hundreds of dollars for one session right? Where basically read sort of what's going on in your brain and helps you to sort of calm down. Well, they've built this in a model where I've got it right here in my studio and it looks like a headband. And so every day I spend five minutes and it measures the oxygen flow in my prefrontal cortex. And as I'm utilizing the app, it calms me down. And so there are now applications like NASA's using it and the NFL's looking into using it. So that to me is something that's I'm fascinated in that. How do we understand and can have more control and awareness mm -hmm. of our brain and sort of how we can manage sort of what we've been given? 
<laughs> uh, with that brain. So that's one thing that I've been I've been doing. Um, and I, I know people are looking into that. The other thing is I'm getting big into journaling and doing that after I've done a session of five minutes of just trying to sort of calm everything around me. And that putting pen to paper, I mean, there's research galore on the power of that pen to paper and what it does. Um, but I do find that it is it is relaxing. And then the last thing, I mean, we all hear it. I think it's harder to do. And I am not, there's no, I'm not the uh, the poster boy for this at all, but is to get better at turning our technology off, you know, at night. And the target would be, you know, an hour before you go to sleep kind of a thing. And I am, I'm the worst of, I share a little secret between you, me and and the planet earth, you know, the audience here is that I often don't even turn my phone off ever. Like even when I fly anymore, I don't. So I'm the worst, but it's something that I'm aiming to do, which is to not watch TV at night and or look at my phone. Um, it's, it's not always something I can do, but it's, it's worth a, it's worth a shot. So, you know, minimizing some of that, I think it would be important. You know, actually last thing, if you don't mind me, I know we're last word here, but there's a book that I found fascinating and it may not seem like it connects, but I do think it connects in some fashion here. And I'm looking at it right now. It's a book called Radiation Nation. And researchers are looking at the power of the impact negatively on all the electronics in our environment. Wi-Fi take, for example, and just the amount of radiation that emanates from that and just wondering what that does to us. Uh, I, boy, I have a sneaking suspicion that some of these findings are going to say that it impacts our ability to sort of be calm and think in the moment when we're literally sort of sitting in microwaves <laughs> uh, with all the Wi-Fi and all the gadgets that we have. So, you know, reading more about it, um, reading about things that could be impacting our environment. But those are some things, long-winded way to say that I'm thinking about this constantly and I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling too. I've literally sleep with my phone sometimes right on my my chest. So I I get it. But um God. <laughs> Um, it is a pleasure having you on the podcast, Dr. Rod Berger. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. And um, we'll probably talk again in a couple of days. We will. We'll keep your phone handy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for tuning into The Sway Effect, our podcast series from our network of innovators, disruptors, movers, and shakers that are changing the marketing communications industry today. Keep up with the latest by following, reviewing, and subscribing to all things that we're doing by checking out our website at www.theswayeffect.com. Let us know what you thought of today's episode by leaving a comment on our LinkedIn and Instagram at The Sway Effect or on Twitter at Sway Effect. <laughs>